you're listening to The Enlightened Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Jane, and I'm a gentle chiropractor, holistic counsellor, energetic worker, intuitive guide, and yoga and meditation teacher. I'm the host and creator of The Enlightened Podcast, and I'll be bringing you stories of resilience, consciousness, healing, the human experience, and just how trauma, loss, and grief can shape us to be more compassionate and more empathetic human beings than ever before. These stories are for the highly sensitives, the empaths, and those wanting to hear a unique approach to holistic health. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode. Today I am chatting to the beautiful Rachel Larson, a naturopath and nutritionist based in Melbourne just like myself and she is a gut bloating and anxiety expert. Her goal is to help others heal their gut, calm their mind and love food again. So I think I first met Rachel at the beginning of the year when we did our fundraiser for the bushfires. So I'm really excited to have her on. And yeah, welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be chatting. Yay! <laughs> that was the first time we met when we organised that event, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, that was a lot of fun. That feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, definitely does. But who who creates events with people they've never even met before? Me and Rachel do. Yeah, I mean, like, why not? oh why not so tell everyone a little bit about yourself I know I gave you a little bit of an intro and a little bit of a um you know a description of what you do but maybe you can in your own words describe what you do and why you wanted to be a naturopath and nutritionist of course so yeah like you said I'm a I'm a naturopath I'm a nutritionist I'm a I guess what I'm going to call myself a holistic gut health expert and so um I guess it suggests in the name, I love the gut and I love everything about the gut. Um, but as we know, the gut is the trunk of the tree. And the reason why I love the the gut is because it plays its role in so many other parts of health. So I really believe that when we're experiencing like um, poor health, illness, any conditions or just not feeling like yourself, there's more than likely something going on with the gut. So I really like to support it because it generally is a part of the root cause. So um, I guess wanting to treat and support people from a really effective place. And I got into naturopathy, particularly the gut, but I guess holistic health and um, alternative health is through my own health um, struggles. As I, as I feel like many health practitioners kind of have a similar um, story. It's like it's from our own wanting to help ourselves that we, you know, we try different modalities. And when something sits with us, it's just like, hang on a second, this really worked to me. I want to, um, you know, share this with others. So, you know, I, um, I guess even going back to my teens, I have experienced you know, many health conditions, instabilities with weight, poor skin, gut, um, stress and anxiety. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, a pretty picture I'm painting there. <laughs> but, no, everyone can relate to that, I'm yeah, sure. It's like tick, tick, yep, that's me. Yeah, I mean, like it's pretty human experiences I guess I went through and I, you know, was trying to find my own supports and I went through, you know, the general practitioners, the specialists, dietitians, and nothing helped, at least not 
from a long-term perspective. So, um, you know, 10 years later, I found myself in the office of an integrative doctor um, and naturopath um, and my life changed. I started seeing, um, don't get me wrong, it wasn't an overnight success as the healing journey never is, but I really started to see shifts in my um, in my health and I had to go back and study naturopathy. I was kind of partway through a degree and I was like, well, let's finish this one and let's go back and do another. Mm, <laughs> and someone else who loves a hex stick. <laughs> I know. I was a, you know, serial student for, you know, eight years. So I'm glad that part of my life is done. But, you know, the skills and the knowledge that I have, I had to go through that journey to get there. So, um, yeah, and I guess when qualified, it was fell into a clinic that had a, I guess, a real um, focus on gut, which married up with um, my own experience and also in my family. Um, we've got an irritable bowel disease picture that affects um, two of my sisters and one of my parents. So, you know, um, there's a family of six, so 50% of us um, are experiencing irritable bowel disease. So from the word go, I always knew that hang on, something's, you know, something's really speaking to me about needing to work with the gut. Um, And here we are today. (laughs) Mm, mm, I love it. But you're so right. I think a lot of us don't realize how much the gut is contributing to the way we feel mentally, as well as physically. Oh, totally. I mean, we're learning more and more about this, um, this wonderful organ, this wonderful system of ours. And you know, the mind-gut connection, the gut-immune connection, the gut-thyroid connection, the gut-hormone connection, like these are all connections to the gut um, that are, you know, being backed up by science. Whereas, you know, for, for hundreds of years, alternative therapies, whether it be naturopathy or you look at Chinese medicine or otherwise, we've always known the body's being connected in these ways. But now we're actually getting the science and talking about the biochemical pathways as to how and why this happens, which is really cool and incredibly validating. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you a few things from my own experience and also the experiences that I have with clients. Mm. One of the questions I just want to ask you as well is why might someone see, say, like a gastroenterologist or they've had a colonoscopy or they've had, you know, their stomach looked at and, you know, um, the colon looked at and all these things and they can't find anything, say, physical Mm. as a problem in terms of their gut. Maybe they're experiencing bloating or sensitivity to food or, or whatever that might be. That happens a lot in my clinic where they've you know there's a hand you know there's quite a few people who have been diagnosed with like IBS and all that kind of thing as well but then there's another load of people who can't seem to have any diagnoses with in regards to at least western medicine um what might be going on for those people yeah um you know and I unfortunately see that so often as like I guess in an initial consult it'll be one of the first remarks people said it's like no one can find anything wrong with me which is like I can only imagine actually no I can I know how that feels (laughs) and it's really deflating and frustrating and disappointing and you know, as, as important as all of these blood tests, colonoscopies and these ultrasounds are, don't get me wrong, we absolutely need them and they're fantastic in our healthcare system. But where they uh, don't shine in terms of their ability is because they are focusing on identifying disease in a disease state and abnormalities. So it's very like... Um, illness, wellness, you know, black and white kind of thing. So, you know, colonoscopy is fantastic when you've got um, ulcerative colitis. That is how it's diagnosed. Um, 
However, when we have an issue of dysfunction or imbalance, rather pathology and disease, that's where these tests can potentially you know, fail us or, you know, you kind of, you you left in the cracks. So what I mean by dysfunction and balance is kind of like this gray area in between wellness and illness. It's kind of like the in-between parts where the body isn't exactly working in sync. You might have, for example, bacteria that are out of balance. You might have different um, chemicals in the body being made in too much or not enough quantities, but that actually doesn't fall into the category of being diagnosed and picked up as a disease. So a really good example is um, changes in the gut microbiome. Um, it like What we call that is dysbiosis, which is essentially a bacteria profile, which isn't um, the healthy profile that we would like. But just because you have dysbiosis doesn't mean you have a disease state, um, doesn't mean you have ulcerative colitis, doesn't mean you have Um, or, uh, yeah, like diverticulitis in terms of like that doesn't get picked up the the microbiome. So we need to start looking at tests that are focused on picking up um, dysfunction and imbalance in the gut or or in the body. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So almost the wellness stage in between illness and wellness. Exactly, exactly, wellness (laughs) Yeah, it's not quite um, disease state, but there's still a dysfunction going, yes, no, that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, yeah, like you said, they may not have an actual, yeah, disease or um, they haven't got into that state yet, um, but they don't have the ability to pick up the process of why that might be occurring in terms of other things. Like, Yeah, I love that. And that can be, I guess, where a lot of my patients are diagnosed with IBS because it is this, Mm. you know, IBS is a true condition. I just feel that potentially there is a, um, there, there may be people with that label that, in fact, that may not be truthful in that what if it's another issue at hand, but um, the person or the people or the industry that's um, giving that label hasn't quite um, acknowledged or explored these other areas of dysfunction. So, you know, with their knowledge and recognition of how they view health, it's an IBS case. Whereas I challenge that thinking, well, what if it's not? What if it's a matter of dysfunction and balance in another way that doesn't, you know, that and it's not actually a true IBS picture? So how do they diagnose IBS in that case? Is it more just they can't um, find anything else and your symptoms meet kind of a criteria so it's almost like a blanket kind of diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. So it, there's the Rome 4 criteria. So Rome 4 meaning it has, has been, um, you know, there was Rome 1, 2, 3 and 4. So they've updated this essentially, um, this symptom criteria where, um, you know, it's like kind of like you don't have this but you do have this but you've got symptoms this many times a week and therefore that kind of um puts you in an IBS category so yeah it's kind of like nothing else has been identified but you still have symptoms therefore it's this Mm -hmm. so if someone has some gut issues I know most of them are aware but just in case what symptoms might they be experiencing or what symptoms may actually be indicating a gut issue and maybe not something else going on for people and and what are the causes you tend to see you know is it is it generally more the chemical or the um you know that kind of thing or what is it that you're seeing most in your practice yeah so from a symptom picture without sounding like um (laughs) too kind of extreme but essentially (laughs) Any symptom could have a gut link, which isn't very helpful when I say that, but it's, it, it's, ah! <laughs> yeah. 
and it is because of that gut everything connection but some real like I guess standout um, things would be like skin conditions um, any autoimmune condition um, and the link with the autoimmunity is that um, you know we've got over 70 percent of our immune system in our gut and given that autoimmunity is an immune condition um, you know we would be thinking well what's happening from a gut perspective any food allergies, food intolerances, food reactions, anything that is less than ideal in terms of how you respond to food, think gut. Um, um, poor, um, poor sleep, poor energy, mental health, any conditions, there's also that link in the gut. And then most obviously you have your gut symptoms where if it's bloating, reflux, yucky taste in the mouth, bowel motions, which are either you know not happening happening too often or a little bit of everything mixed bag um yeah yeah, so there's but yeah so I guess lots of symptoms I've mentioned mentioned there um what I see in clinic as I guess one of the most um pressing issues that everyone's facing is bloating um food intolerances and as a result a lot of food anxiety which understandably um if you're having to eat something or eat three times a day and you're a bit like will this cause me an immense amount of pain or will I be fine? Like that's quite an anxiety triggering event. Um, But the bloating aspect for me is what I see is everyone's like, this is just the worst. And one of the biggest drivers of bloating is um, a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So SIBO or SIBO, depending on, you know, how you want to pronounce things. Um, And as the name suggests, it's a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. And interestingly, it looks very, very similar to the symptoms of IBS. So for many of my patients that come in say, I've got IBS or I don't know what's wrong or potentially this is the label I've been given, I actually then feel like it's it's worth exploring SIBO um, because it's something that not all practitioners have awareness or recognise, but it is a very real um, condition that could be happening and it affects you know, just under 80% of people with IBS and up to 40% of people without IBS can actually have this SIBO thing. And that's the number one cause of bloating um, I see in my practice. Mm, So what might create that in the first place? Yeah, so there's, um, as you know, we can appreciate with, um, I guess, seeing the body as a connected, holistic complex thing there's there's a number of things that can cause that so it's very rarely cause and effect um a lot of the time it is well a lot of the time I mean talk to anybody and I guess if I was to sample my um if I was to sample my patients I would say some of the the main um issues that would come up in terms of what's caused it would be um like chronic history of antibiotics um chronic stress um post-infectious issues so if they've had food poisoning traveler's diary you know any type of gastro it's kind of like this you know never been well since um but it can also creep up on people and it doesn't necessarily have to be as like one day they're fine the next day you know they're feeling terrible so i'd definitely say um history of antibiotics stress um post-infectious issues are big triggers but the list as to what caused SIBO is quite long as well so Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit your picture that doesn't mean it's not that 
Yeah. 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 I, I think there's just a lot of things going on in the gut that we don't even know ourselves. So why is the gut connected to everything? Is it in relation to kind of like the vagus nerve or, or what? how do you see it in terms of the gut being connected or this highway to um, everything throughout the body? Yeah, I mean, it's connected. So one of the ways I, you know, it's connected is in the fact that it's the organ that is responsible for, for our nutrition. Um, without our nutrients, um we don't function because our nutrients, so we're talking like B vitamins, magnesium, zinc, all of these things, um, without them, we do not function. We cannot make the particular chemicals, have the different processes in the body function if it doesn't have those building blocks and it doesn't have those things required for them to function. So, you know, if there's a nutritional deficiency, we're thinking gut. So that's one way. Vagus nerve, as you mentioned, so heavily linked to our nervous system that um, bi-directional highway um, connecting um, yeah, the nervous system to our gut. They are feeding and sensing off each other constantly. Um, I mentioned a bit earlier about how there's up to 70% or over 70%. I think there's a varied um, percentage on that one of the immune system in the gut. So you know, anything between allergies, eczema, autoimmune conditions, um, you know, we need to be thinking about the gut. And then also when we think hormones, it's a very big place of um, detoxification and metabolism of that. So, um, yeah, there's like that's that's one way that a hormonal and gut, a hormone gut connection is kind of connected. Mm, yeah. Mm. So I like that. I had to I had to ask because I know I know we all hear that, you know, it guts connected to everything. I'm like, but how is it actually? I've forgotten. <laughs> Give me a recap. Oh, like there's probably many, many more, but you know, I guess there's some big <laughs> systems where it's like the gut the gut um hormone, the gut mental health, you know. So there are a few key ones um that we look at. Um and you know, a few of the key issues that people come in and wanting help with that and I have to explain that to them like this is how. <laughs> mm, 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 yeah, because if hormones I'm seeing more and more of in clinic as well where people are having issues with their hormones. So it's it's an interesting one, that one too. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I guess we can't look past one of, I guess, the biggest hormonal disruptors being cortisol. And, you know, if present day is anything to go off, um, we all know we're probably experiencing a lot more cortisol, our stress hormone, than what we're used to. So, so much can actually go, you know, a when we've got excess of that mm, mm, definitely can you talk a little bit about um probiotics because you mentioned before that antibiotics can sometimes be a, a at least a contributor to gut issues or gut challenges um if say they've been on them for a long-term usage but what are some of the common misconceptions in regards to them because i you know i always thought oh if i have to have an antibiotic i have to take a probiotic at the same time and then continue for like a week after or what's a prebiotic because that seems to be this new thing that i haven't heard too much about as well but now that everyone seems to be saying the prebiotics better or more important than the yeah. pro I'm even confused. Can you give me a little bit of insight and everyone else a bit of insight in regards to that too? Totally. Um, yeah, big questions. Um, and I'll definitely got some answers for you to try and make it a bit easier. So um, in terms of probiotics, um, yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, when we talk about, I guess the top kind of misconceptions I ha we have about it is that um, we feel that, and we've, I guess, saying the general public, believe that when you take a probiotic, those bacteria that you've consumed stay in your gut permanently. What we know is that they don't. So they have a very transient action 
but beneficial actions. So if you have 50 billion probiotics um, in a capsule, they'll do their magical work while they're there, um, but then they will pass eventually. And that can be days to weeks, you know, depending on the type of strain, the person, that kind of thing. So, you know, think transient, but think beneficial. What we also think is like one probiotic is equal to another. And the more we know about the gut, um, we're finding that um, strains matter. Um, And by that, you know, we look at um, like Lactobacillus plantarum 299V. So the 299V is a very specific name and label for that um, type of bacteria. If you were to get another Lactobacillus plantarum, I'm going to make up something like 172A. Um, Mm -hmm. We cannot guarantee that that will have the same action in the gut as the 299V type. So strain specificity is incredibly important when we're thinking about wanting to give a therapeutic therapeutic action. So clinically speaking, you know, we're trying to use the most evidence-based probiotics because um, that's where the evidence lies. And if we were to choose, for example, a strain that doesn't have the evidence behind it, even though it might look the same, it's got the same first and second kind of name to it, we actually can't guarantee that that will do the same job. So um, transient is um, the action of the probiotics and also strain specific. Um, and thankfully, there's more and more evidence coming out, you know, where they're testing different strains for different conditions. Um, and it's quite exciting. When we come to um, prebiotics, so prebiotics are the foods that our bacteria in our gut eat. So it's the fuel for our gut. And this is where when we have high prebiotic foods, which is um, all your high fiber, legumes, pulses, you know, apples, garlic, onion, cauliflower, like so many of our fruits and vegetables, grains um, and legumes, they are prebiotic. They are the things that keep our bugs, our good bugs, alive and happy in our gut. So when we're wanting long-term permanent changes, we need to make long-term permanent changes with our diet that's in favor of high prebiotic foods to help kind of keep our gut bacteria alive and happy. So probiotics is the bacteria themselves. Prebiotics is the food for our own bacteria, which is why some people are like, well, are prebiotics better? They're different. Um, but that's kind of the differences in how they work. Mm, yeah. Okay. And and can you have an overgrowth of good bacteria in your gut? That seems to be something I'm hearing a little bit more about as well. Not just, you know, there's not enough bacteria or when you had the antibiotics, they killed all the bacteria, the good and the bad or whatever. Can you have an actual overgrowth of good bacteria as well? You can in that it would still be an issue of dysbiosis. So what when it's, okay. it's yeah, so any issue where you've got too much of one thing, whether it be good or pathogenic bad um, it's still a matter of dysbiosis or potentially there's too many of the good type because there's a lack of variety in the gut which is also a type of dysbiosis so you know there are definitely um, different percentages of bacteria which they've been able to say like hey in in these healthy guts we find that it's good to have you know about five percent of your microbiome made up of for example bifidobacterium strains as an example um if, for example, we have 20, 30 or 50%, it would be because there's a there's a, um, there's a lack of variety in the gut that's allowed that to be there. So that would be a problem in that sense. Okay. Because I have had, yeah, a few patients come to me and say, oh, no, I've just been, you know, um, to my 
whether it's a naturopath or, or whoever it might be, and they're saying, I've got too much good bacteria. And I'm like, I don't understand that. You're going to have to talk to them about that. So, <laughs> yeah, go back to them. <laughs> yeah, go back to them. I'm not sure what that is. So I thought I'd better ask you that as well because that's something I've heard a little bit about. But, you know, you mentioned some of the foods that can be good for our gut and um, off air we were talking a little bit about, mm. well, I was giving you some of the ideas of what we might be discussing today. And I, I was saying to you, a lot of my clients with gut, you know, challenges seem to have been told to go on, you know, FODMAP diets or whatever that might be. Can can you explain why this might be beneficial to some people or m- maybe not long-term or is it good while you're doing it, but then as soon as you try to eat something, it, it arcs it up again? Like what's what's with the FODMAP diet and is it actually beneficial totally. overall? Yeah, I mean, I love this question because I just like I'm bursting to kind of get this message out there. Um and it, it is that a low FODMAP diet, which is, um, if anybody doesn't know, it's um, fermentable oligo, moni, and polysaccharides, um, which of is. Of course it is. <laughs> which, is why, which is why we call it FODMAPs. <laughs> why don't you guys know that? I know. You're just like, no, no, abbreviations work much better. For me too. For me too. Um, so the reason, so FODMAPs is essentially a group of really highly fermentable um, foods, which, you know, are types of prebiotics. So good for the gut. Why you might feel a bit crummy having them is when, um, or why you might be putting a low FODMAP diet is because you're, you've gone to a GP, you've gone to a dietitian, you've gone to someone and they've said, you know, with maybe the issues of inconsistent bowel motions, bloating, you know, feeling refluxy, so any of those gut-specific symptoms, they'd be saying, hey, let's take out FODMAPs um, for, for a while. What the FODMAP diet should be is a temporary diet. And by temporary, it's a matter of weeks to maybe a month or two. Um, and it should be that um, I guess when it was originally created, it's then um, after that period of time, you start introducing back foods back in um, with the hope that the body is going to be able to tolerate them and be less reactive to them. So it's a very common diet when someone's given the IBS label. The problem that or what I'm finding is a problem is that for many patients, they're told to go on an IBS diet, oh, sorry, a low FODMAP diet, um, and then when they introduce these foods back in, there is no change. And in fact, they still feel terrible and maybe even worse at some point. The issue with that is that we haven't changed what's happening in the body. All we have done is taken out the trigger. So if you take out the trigger, nothing changes, bringing back the trigger, you're going to be triggered. So this is where um, from a naturopathic and what I'm doing in my clinic is like, well, why is the body responding in this way? And quite often um, it is this issue of SIBO or SIBO where we do have this overgrowth of bacteria in our small intestine that we find um, they love our high FODMAP foods, um, as do all bacteria because it's fantastic for our gut. But when we have Yum. yeah, but when we have bacteria in the wrong place, that's where troubles arise. So I'm thinking about when the person sitting in front of me, when FODMAPs are an issue, when the yummy hummus, garlic, you know, all the good foods are, you know, a problem, I'm thinking what's happening in the body that's causing this I'm never looking at the food thinking that's the problem the problem is something that's within and we need to figure out what that is Mm, so why might some like I know some of my patients they get to the point where they almost can't eat 
anything without feeling sick eventually you know maybe at the start it was like oh I can't have green apples and then it gets to a point where I can't have apples oranges or lemons and then it gets to a point where they end up not really being able to eat anything without some kind of response what what is that about yeah like that's so hard to hear and listen to and I mean I'm grateful that that hasn't been my experience but like when I see that and hear that like I know there's been months to years of pain and anxiety around that so what can happen is that when we start to eliminate some of these foods um, it actually can increase sensitivity to these foods but more importantly the issue that's driving the food intolerances and it may even be allergies um, hasn't been addressed so it's going to just sit there simmer perpetuate away what can happen like if it's starting, if it starts off as a FODMAP thing, but then it kind of creeps into these other foods that aren't FODMAP but are still an issue, it can be because like chemical sensitivities can develop. So this is where, you know, and this is still just an extension of a gut that's a bit out of whack. So it's just kind of like the natural progression of a bad gut kind of getting a bit worse. Um, and so some chemical sensitivities can be things like salicylates um, where you'll find what's a good example of that lots of herbs will have salicylates in there um, blueberries um, I think or another one trying to think off the top of my head Um, histamine can be an issue and this is where fermented foods can be a problem oxalates can be a problem if there's like lots of spinach and sweet potato so all of these foods that you just like but aren't these good foods again these are great foods the problem is happening is what's in the gut Mm. yeah (laughs) it must be so frustrating and I'm seeing a lot more of um like dairy intolerances or they've been told that you know they need to have lactose-free milks and and things like Mm. that or or dairy what's what's actually going on with that is it a lactose issue or is it the enzymes or what's going on with the enzymes um you know it's quite intricate the area absolutely so you know I guess when we talk about dairy um there's a couple of things so you can have um and people use the word I guess it's good to clear up now um the difference between allergies and intolerances. So allergies is when there's an immune response to the food. Um, An intolerance is when there's an an inability to break down and digest and metabolize the sugar. So the, um, the, casein and the intolerance is more to the sugar part which is the lactose so when someone has a milk issue it's good to be like well is it an allergy or an intolerance if it's an intolerance that actually still may be a similar issue to a SIBO issue because lactose is a type of FODMAP. So, you know, when someone comes to me with a lactose issue, I'm actually thinking it could be a true lactose issue where you don't have the enzyme to to break it down or it may be you've developed a lactose intolerance because there's a fermentability issue due to SIBO in place. So um, if it's an allergy to dairy, um, that can be because, again, you're born with it and it also depends on the type of allergy, which is another really big kind of area of interest that can happen. But um, when you develop an allergy, it could also be there's a leaky gut picture there as well. And over time, your body's just like, I don't care for this food anymore. In fact, I'm quite angry that it's here. I'm going to develop an immune response. Immune response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not yeah. to be confused for those people working in hospitality, um, if someone says <laughs> they don't want gluten, they might in fact be allergic to it as opposed to, say, um, just not wanting it in their food. So some people get confused with that. Exactly, exactly. Like if somebody, but I mean like to love hospice, but also if someone doesn't say they don't want gluten, don't give them gluten. There's a reason. 
reason behind that and it can be very confusing for everybody to understand. They just know that they feel better with that. And it's actually um, interesting that we talk about gluten because um, wheat is actually another example of is it an intolerance or an allergy because there's the fructans, which is a type of FODMAP in wheat where it actually may be like you feel bad having gluten, but it's not actually the gluten, it's the wheat that you're having a response to. So I always try to, I guess, educate people around how gluten isn't always the demon or isn't always the issue. There's actually other parts to gluten-containing grains that could be an issue. Um, so, again, just trying to, you know, educate people because food is so complex um, and mm. how our body responds to it, you know, there's so many different ways. Well, it's like how they put that synthetic folic acid in all our food and in our bread and things. I don't know why they do that. Yeah, I know. I mean, fortification of food is, I guess, um, yeah, another issue. You know, some people, you know, don't respond well to, um, you know, folic acid as a good example, depending on how their, um, you know, what their chemical structure is and how they, you know, metabolize folate. So, um, yeah, that's another thing that you could be dealing with as well. Mm, yes yes (laughs) definitely so can you talk a little bit because as you know a lot of people I work with are more um you know it's more emotional or or mental health in regards to why they're coming to see me so in terms of um stress and anxiety and trauma how can this contribute to the gut challenges it's very rare that I see someone in my clinic with stress or chronic anxiety or whatever that might be without a gut challenge. Um, So why is this an issue and how can someone help themselves? Can you actually, um, if we work on their anxiety, can that in turn help their gut or what can we do in regards to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all my patients, if we're working on gut, there's, you know, we're always actually looking at what the nervous system is doing as well, um, because there is that very intricate connection. Um, Like we've spoken about, the vagus nerve uh, is a big connection between like the brain and the gut. Um, What can happen is in terms of like chronic stress, chronic anxiety, and Sarah, I know you know all about this, and I'm sure you've spoken to your patients about it, but it's that issue of sympathetic nervous system dominance, that fight and flight response versus a rest and digest or a parasympathetic nervous system dominance. Um, It's this, you know, ratio of um, the nervous system or or these two parts of the nervous system that I'm finding too many of my patients um, and maybe or most probably yours as well, Sarah, that are in this sympathetic nervous system fight and flight dominance. And how that relates to the gut is when we're in fight and flight, our body is not focused on the quality and the capability and the ability ability of um, our bodies to digest food. It's in a danger response mode. So it's all about shunting blood and energy and focus to the extremities, to the heart, um, you know, because it's, you know, trying to get away from perceived danger. Um, it's in direct opposition to our rest and digest. So as the name suggests, resting and digesting. Uh, and so when we're in a, con- a chronic state of this fight and flight, there's a constant neglect of um, blood flow um, focus on our digestive system. Um, and over time, that can really cause havoc in terms of, you know, our body's perceived um, need to create things like enzymes and acids and um, our ability to you know send signals to our gut to poo properly like it's just it's for so long the body's been telling the person you don't actually need to digest right now because we're in a state of danger response um but 
what is causing that danger response as we as you know Sarah can be things like opening a stressful email can be things like running like to work like these are all still eliciting that danger response even though you're actually may not be in a life and death situation so you know chronic stress caused by everyday stresses has everybody working in this fight and flight place and if that's happening for enough days weeks months years you can really see these gut issues start to appear um I hope that made sense. <laughs> no, it, it does. I just, yeah, because, yeah, you just don't really see one without the other and it's it's becoming more and more predominant, at least within my clinic. Um, yeah. And they tend to get some results with what I'm doing because it takes them into a parasympathetic state, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but still, um, I try to refer them out so that they can get some more assistance in terms of, because I don't diagnose what's actually going on with them in terms of their gut, yeah. you know, if someone was to come and see you, what can they expect in terms of like testing and things? Why is it different? Because um, a lot of people don't want to see naturopaths because they're like, oh, they're going to give me, you know, $700 worth of supplements and then they're going to make me do these tests. It's going to be $1 million and then I'm going to take it all and not feel any different. What yeah. what can people expect from seeing you and where that's not the case? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of functional testing, like, we all know money doesn't grow on trees, um, but, uh, you know, I totally appreciate the costs involved in these functional tests. Like we don't get any rebate from the government behind that. So it is an out-of-pocket cost. Um, so when we are assessing is a functional test appropriate, we are actually just wanting to think about the one test to start off with. And it may be that we do one test um, initially, and then we wait literally like six months to do another test if required. So what we know is that sometimes having all of this information from five different tests isn't actually helpful. It's just, in fact, very confusing and overwhelming for everybody because it's kind of like the more you search for things, the more problems you find. Um, And sometimes it's like if you actually fix one of the problems, the other stuff falls into line. So if we are looking at functional testing, you know, we're picking the, you know, for example, with me, I'm picking the one maybe two on the odd occasion that is trying to look at what's happening from a root cause perspective, knowing that when we address that, everything kind of just like falls into line. Well, that's the hope anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of how I support my patients, it is a combination of, you know, functional testing to help refine what we think's going on. So SIBO is a great example of that. It might, um, what's the saying? Look like a duck, sound like a duck, uh, walk like a, a duck. a duck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what if it's not a duck? Like that would be. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I know sometimes. It's a pigeon. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a yellow pigeon. Um, yeah, so, some, so sometimes there is this like, look, I'm pretty bloody confident this is what's going on. And when we tested, it's not there. It's kind of like amazing. We now know that we don't need to focus five months of our time working on something that isn't actually quite right. So um, that's where sometimes functional testing can really help refine our knowledge as to what's going on or rule out something where we just really want to get specific about our understanding. So functional testing I use in that sense looking at the biochemistry of someone. So supporting how their body can create different chemicals and outcomes is what we're looking at too. So that's just making sure there's no nutritional deficiencies running around. Like if there's an iron deficiency and they're tired, I'm not going to say, well, maybe you need to sleep more. It's like, well, maybe you need more iron. Um, So making sure that they're in sync in that way. Um, Food is medicine, our most best, most available medicine, which 
I totally understand understand that when we're talking about gut, um, food is sometimes not the medicine at all. It in fact feels like the enemy. So it's a very like um, you know, it's a very um, into like it's a personal kind of journey with that one. But we ultimately want to regain our trust and our love of food um, and use that as part of the treatment plan. And of course, using herbs and supplements to support um, you know what's needed. You know, to support, for example, the functional test results. Or if they are feeling so overwhelmed and overstressed, we need to get some delicious herbs in there to to give that nervous system a break. Um, so really trying to come at health. Um, at all, you know, from all facets. And um, I didn't mention that, but you've mentioned it in terms of like getting support for the mind. So whether it be working with me or referring out, um, you know, or, you know, encouraging them to go back and see a counsellor or whoever they see as their um, go-to mental health warrior kind of support, that's what we're trying to do as well. So we're trying to get health happening from all parts of the person. Yeah, so you're not giving them the picture of the food pyramid and sending them on their way. <laughs> uh, no, I have not looked at that one for a while. <laughs> oh, what is with the food pyramid? When my mum came out of hospital and, you know, they send you home with like a dietitian to help you at, um, you know, once you, you go back into the home and I was like, how are they telling these people? Like my mum's just had a brain disease and they're telling her to eat basically shit I couldn't get over it I was like what is this yeah I mean like it just there are different ways of using food food can be therapeutic and that just seems like it's such a very um like it's such a general kind of like you know approach to health and it's just like her needs are far different to someone with diabetes to my needs like it but it's a very cookie cutter I guess guideline and it's just it's not therapeutic. I think that's the biggest issue. It's not a therapeutic diet. It's a. It's trying to, I guess, get the masses in terms of nutrition, and I don't know if it does that either. No. Like even no. when we're in the neurological ward, people are being fed jelly and ice cream every day. Ah, oh, they are definitely not part of the healing diet. No. <laughs> and, I, you know, ever since being in hospital, she's almost had cravings for sugar and she never had sugar in her life really much anyway um, before this. But because of everything that they fed her, which was just full of Oh, I don't even want to know. I was just like, how are they feeding this to sick people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to be led into a hospital to have a go of their um, their, their food plans. Um, I'm sure they wouldn't let an naturopath in there, but that's the no. dream. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're definitely not allowed in there, but I think it, it must come down to budget. It just must because it I does not so. make sense. It does I, not make sense. Yeah, I yeah, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I think there has to be something like that playing out as well. Because yeah, I I fail to comprehend it too. Yeah, it must be. It's like when McDonald's got the you know the food star rating or whatever they had wow. the tick the heart yes. the heart disease tick. <laughs> that is <That's> shocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are some things like? Obviously, people should book in an appointment with you. But what are some things that people just listening right now what they can do from home, I guess, or at least in the current state that we're all in, um, that they can do to help their gut health just daily, like little simple things that could just maybe make a bit of a difference. Obviously, not to those people who maybe need further investigations, but just in general, for people without necessarily gut challenges, what can we do to still promote gut health? Yeah, totally. There's so many great tips. I'm trying to actually not go crazy and give you too many things. (laughs) But I guess um, one of the or a couple of the things I find is 
um, amazing for the microbiome, which is our whole gut flora and our gut is a variety in our diet. So obviously if there's any like issues with food allergies and intolerances and not knowing what your food is triggering you, obviously this may not be a great rule for you. But for anyone who's wanting to optimize their gut health, um, choosing uh, try, trying to get over 40 different plant foods in your diet per week. So plant foods are herbs and spices, fruits, veggies, um, nuts, grains, legumes, 40 different ones over the week. Um, but that could be as simple as picking purple carrots instead of orange or, you know, getting a different type of apple to what you normally get. So really trying to focus on getting variety in the diet. So a varied diet equals a varied microbiome. It's a yeah, it's, I guess, a very like easy one to do when you're in your supermarket, pick up a food you haven't tried before um, and learn how to cook with it because, you know, we might have more time to even explore that. Um, the, I guess the other, I'll give you two more because, um, yeah, give you two more. So obviously in um, COVID times, we're probably wanting to eat and snack a bit more. Um, I do find that for many of my patients, reducing the snacking um, is helpful in terms of how their body digests then the main meal that they have. So by allowing that body to rest and digest um, the food that they had, kind of build up their acid and enzyme kind of um, load for the next meal, it makes that next meal a lot easier to, um, to digest. So reducing snacking if that's appropriate for your health. Um, and then lastly, um, doing overnight fasting, which is great because you're sleeping most of the time, um, is when we are trying to give our body as big a window of a break in between the dinner of the night before and the breakfast of the next day, um, aiming for about 12 to 13 hours, again, if appropriate for your health, um, can be amazing because what it can really do is also provide that gut with a, with a, um, a good chunk of time to rest and digest because when it's um, – not digesting food, um, it is healing. Um, and you know, let's be honest, we can all do with a bit more healing. Um, so yeah, that overnight fasting can be also quite helpful for, for bloating and, um, all sorts of, um, I guess, gut kind of niggles and issues. Mm, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your expertise and information. I know it's going to be so beneficial to so many listening. Uh, look, I hope so. I'm all about empowering others with the, you know, the tools and the skills that you need to change your own life. So if today you leave knowing that or leave trying the very diet, reducing snacking and, you know, trying to, I guess, increase that time in between dinner and breakfast, that's like you're on your way to having a, a healthier, happier gut. Um, yeah, and hopefully, um, pardon the pun, but all the stuff from today has been slightly easier to digest than maybe looking <laughs> online and everything. <laughs> No, I love it. I love it. And I will pop down um, on the podcast your website and your Instagram. But do you want to just let everyone know what that is quickly as well? Yes. So um, my website is rachellarson.com.au and my Instagram handle is rachel.larson. And um, there's so many ways to spell both my names. It's R-A-C-H-E-L-L-A-R-S-S-O-N. I'm glad you spelt the double S because that's always a tricky one. I even had to redo that today. I was like, nope, it's double S. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad that you did. And hopefully everyone enjoys this episode. And I look forward to catching up with you on the outside when we're allowed out, Rachel. (laughs) I know, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been too fun. (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, guys.